As followers of Jesus in the midst of another polarizing election season, we don't have the choice to walk away from our responsibility to change broken policies that are breaking our neighbors or to end relationships with our family and friends who might think differently than we do. That's why this season of the Everyday Peacemaking Podcast is exploring how we are to engage politics as citizens of the kingdom of God and the United States. It's going to be hard and messy, but it's holy work, and we're here for it all. Thanks for joining us for Peace in Politics, becoming everyday peacemakers in and outside of the voting booth. Okay, John, we're doing it. We are going in. Peace and politics. No turning back. <laughs> turning back. Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is our introduction, our first episode together, where yep. everybody gets a little bit of kind of your academic brilliant brilliantness. That's not even a word, but whatever. Like I'm going to make it a word. <laughs> um, for it, it, kind of the landscape that we're dealing with, some of the phrases that we're talking about. Um, and then we both get to share some of our stories. Yes. Time, I, I love because I think stories change the world. Mm. So this is a, this is a beautiful way to kick off this podcast yes. series. What are you most excited or grateful for in our in the upcoming conversation that our listeners going to get to listen to? I, I'm with you on the stories. I mean, why you and I care about this, Matt, is, is really compelling um, and exciting to me. But also, you know, a, a, a big chunk of our conversation is what does it look like for you specifically as a woman of color someone who's been impacted by our broken systems what does it look like for you to show up in these moments especially around relationships and how it's different for you to show up in relationships than it is for me as someone with privilege uh, and inherited power and I think that is a a conversation with nuance and beauty and and empathy and and that we all especially people like me need to hear so I'm really excited about that yeah and it was it was an honor and it was a gift to have you ask me to talk about that because I don't always get asked mm. permission. Um, I so thank you for that. You bet. Thanks for being yeah. willing to share it. That's that's the gift. So well, I hope you all enjoy our upcoming conversation. We're kicking off our series on peace and politics. Oshida, here we are. It is good to be together and talk some peace and politics. Yes, we are kicking off this podcast series. This is exciting. I I cannot tell you how grateful I was to be invited to join Mm. you in this conversation for this podcast um, because I have just deeply respected Global Immersion um, Mm. and to know that you all are contemplating how to bring our peacemaking ethic to our voting and our political life. It's just, yeah. I was so grateful. So, I mean, I know you told me in inviting me in, but I really would love to hear a little bit more why this podcast series, why now? Yeah. Like, tell us, tell me more about that. That's like, good. Yeah. Well, it's an, I mean, the honor, by the way, is equal that you would <laughs> want to jump in with us in this way. And, not only your academic work and your written words and your contemplative practices, but who you are as a human um, mm. makes you someone that we all need to listen to and learn from and be alongside in this conversation. So it's it's fun to do this with you. Um, why we think it cares global immersion wise? I mean, we we train we t- train people of faith to be everyday peacemakers and to be what we call reconciling leaders. And you know, as we've talked about 
many times uh, together. Peace is not about perpetuating the status quo. Uh, it's not passive. It's proactive. And so here we are in the, in the political season. And I think for many of you listening in, probably uh, you're feeling the heat of, oh my gosh, it is time. Like, let's roll up our sleeves again. We had 2016. Yeah. And we went to the midterms in 18. Then we did a presidential election again in 2020. And now we're in 2022 saying, what is this world that we're part of? And yeah. how are we actually engaging it in ways that work towards healing broken stuff and we want to talk about it. So this season for us global immersion wise was us saying, let's not, not talk about the thing that everyone's feeling. And I think we actually have a lot of tools historically, theologically, practically, yeah, uh, as peacemakers to engage this in our relationships in the voting booth. And, um, we have an awesome group of people around the country and outside of the country who can help us along that way. And so, yeah. So to have to have space for these conversations and maybe even the ones that get us a little bit uncomfortable or, or ones we feel like we don't have safe places to talk about in our own yeah. in our own uh, circles. That's that's why we want to have this podcast season out there. Yeah, I um, what I love about the way that we are approaching this conversation, this series I so I'm always a like a super practical person, like so what, who cares is my yeah. favorite thing to say when theologians just pontificate for hours upon hours. Like, okay, yeah. great. So what who cares? I yeah. love the two questions that we are asking all of our guests. Mm. Will you tell like let's tell us about like let's go through those questions. Why yeah. why those two questions and how does it actually help us yeah. practice peacemaking? You bet. I'll answer I'll, I'll pose the questions and then I'd love to hear too why you care about these questions personally. Um, okay. And I could share a bit too, because these, these are very personal. These questions come from personal experience and also the experience we've had with people across the country who are trying to be peacemakers, but are struggling through this season. So the first question we're asking is uh, how and why is engaging politics in this midterm season, a peacemaking practice? Like how, how do we understand punching a ballot as a, opportunity for us to live as peacemakers and and for us we see that peacemaking is is a systemic reality as well as a relational one and a personal one and so we can't think of we're in we're in a society in a nation state called the united states so if we can't engage systemically um we're missing an opportunity to work for peace which we define very simply as the holistic repair of relationship yeah. Um, and the second is very much a response to the felt need, we feel like, of those of you listening in and ourselves. This is personal for you and I is, man, how in the world do we maintain our deep convictions and values about politics and all these broken systems that we feel like we need to help fix and deepen our relationships with family and friends? Because yeah. ultimately we all go home, <laughs> uh, whether <laughs> it's a family reunion or our own house we sleep in every night yeah. or our uh our, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. And if we're peacemakers, we're going to bump into people who disagree with us. And that's not a bad thing. We have to have no. tools to navigate it. So yeah. we want to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. So for so, you, I, Elshita, what's, like, why, do the, why do those questions matter to you? I mean, how would you interact with that? Uh, yeah. So and we're going to talk a little bit more about this because one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast with you, John, is like you are, I love your brain. And you are one of the most well-rounded academics I've ever met. Like you mm. know a lot, you've done a lot of study, um, but then you you led 
your leader in practice. You live it out and then you invite us to live it out alongside you. And so I just know that when you invite us to do something, it's grounded in good study and good praxis. Um, So we're going to talk a little bit more about kind of what I would love to hear more about kind of the academics behind this. But like for me, it's why I care about politics is because I, for the longest struggled with language of the kingdom of God and being a like, what does it mean to be a kingdom person? Um, And, you know, I'm a kingdom person first and American second. And yet as an African-American woman, I, my lived experience is deeply affected by politics, by yep. policies that are passed, by prejudice, by bias, by um, gaps in systems, by rights given to me or rights taken away from me mm-hmm. can determine my capacity for flourishing in this yep. country. Yep. Um, and so for the longest, I struggled with, Having thinking about politics as a way to seek human flourishing for all people and and do it in a way that honors the flourishing of all people because it just felt like such a divisive thing and so I kind of wanted to be apolitical but I couldn't fully be apolitical because I don't have the privilege of of living without politics affecting the way I lived you know right. and so yeah. I was constantly in this kind of like vicious cycle of like, I don't want to think about politics, but I get followed when I go to the store to use my WIC vouchers or mm. use my, when my kids were little, um, because they thought I was going to steal the formula, you know, even yeah. though I was holding WIC vouchers. So a thing that was given to me by the government in order to make sure my children can be cared for because we were, we live below the poverty line. And yet I'm using that in a proper way, but I'm being treated um, with suspicion because of the color of my skin, also because I'm using this resource. And so it's like, how, you know, and so, but I, so I could not be, and this was back when my kids were little, obviously my kids are 20, 17 and 16 now, but, mm. um, you know, so I, I, I really struggled with that. And so I think it's important for us to have a, this conversation because for many people, this can be a fun thought experiment and it can even be something that we opt out, but politics is simply like as we just, as we've described it, the ordering of society, the ways that we're we're promising to live with each other, and if we're going to be peacemakers, then that means we're living for each other's flourishing, which means we have to think about our engagement with politics towards the end of flourishing. Yes. So I wanted to be a part of this conversation because I totally get it as a person of color and a person who holds a peacemaking ethic that like the. The, the the division is really, really scary, but because I'm a person of color, I don't get to opt out of it and I can't, yep. I don't want to live in an existence where my siblings, my white siblings don't enter into this and walk alongside me. And that's this. right. That's going to breed a lot of resentment and bitterness and that, yep. that doesn't cause flourishing for anyone across the board. So that's why this is important to me. Whew. I think that's what's so compelling about your engagement in this conversation is it's very much... Uh, a very, it's very personal. The, the implications are very personal for you. Like how we order society impacts the way that you live and f- and not only flourish but just maintain um, a, a reasonable way of life and parenting and thinking about your kids and the, their ability to drive around without 
without the racist systems impacting them in ways that are terrifying. I mean, right. it feels very visceral and embodied for you. And to be honest, John, that visceral, like that, and that embodied and that like feeling really caused me to want to ignore it and really like, like push it away. Like I can't tell you for the longest, I used to feel like, well, if I feel, I don't want to talk about race because I'm black, because mm-hmm. like I just, I, I, it's all feeling and emotion driven. And, and so, or I don't want to talk about politics because obviously I'm going to talk about politics from a race, from a, from a racialized standpoint, I live a political existence as a black woman. And so, yeah. um, and so for the longest I struggled with that, like maybe my experience is bad or like I partly, you know, my evangelical upbringing made me really suspicious of any emotions or anything I felt in the flesh. Yeah. And so it was like, well, if I'm feeling this, then obviously I need to reject it. I can't, you know, so I shouldn't talk about politics because politics causes me to feel a certain way. But as I've been doing this work and embracing contemplative activism, I've learned to sort of acknowledge those feelings, sit in God's presence with them mm-hmm. and say that I can, that my anger is an indication of, uh, of something that needs to be changed. I don't yeah. have to be afraid of my anger or my sadness is an invitation for the spirit to comfort me and, mm-hmm. and an invitation for me to be vulnerable with my white siblings of a mm-hmm. way that they can comfort me as well. So like my emotions in this work are actually beautiful spirit led indicators if I allow them to be. Yeah. That is, that is a gift and, and a level of wisdom and experience we all are going to benefit yeah. from um, as we have well, this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for that. So I really, okay. So like we talked about it, emotions and experiences. Yep. I, I want you to ground us though in this upcoming conversation, like kind of give us the academic landscape, like how yeah. are all of us, I mean, I shared some in my story. And so you, I'm sure as our listeners kind of listen to you track this through, they'll hear some of my story along the way, but yep. kind of where, where do most people kind of fall or what, how, what's their experiences around? You bet. Um, politics. Yeah, let, let's do that. Let's have a bit of framework. But I have to start. I mean, the reason I care about this and uh, the reason I'm, I'm currently two years into a PhD program in political ethics um, is because of is because of proximity to our broken systems in the form of people I care about. <laughs> um, uh-huh. It's very much a uh, a very practical starting point, relational starting point for me as a, someone of privilege. You know, we talk about privilege. The best definition I've heard, it's so simple but so tangible, is that we have the ability to walk away. People like mm-hmm. me, mm-hmm. a white male with a blue passport, we can walk away from a ton of society's ills and brokenness because it doesn't impact me. Um, and so it, it, it the, the, why I care about this conversation is because I think of um, our dear friend who... Um, I'll use the name Maria in this case. It's not her real name, but she's Mm -hmm. a neighbor, lives a few blocks from us, and is like a second mom to our twins who are seven now. But when when they were born, she was like with us in it. And her and her family, she has five kids, are beautiful and part of our birthday parties. And um, she brings a light and a love to our neighborhood. She's like the the abuela, like the grandma of our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And... Her kids go to our kids' schools, and we're in the community centers together all the time. And a few years ago, when my wife and I were at church, we got a phone call from her in tears 
and she said she was sitting on the side of the road in Tijuana after having been deported. And when we said, hang on, and we, we hand our kids off to our friends at church and we drive across the border, which we live about 15 minutes from the border in San Diego, mm-hmm. and sat with her and wept with her, understanding that she may not find it. There's no path for her. There's no line for her to get in to get citizenship or to return to her five kids and to the neighborhood that loves her and that she loves so well. And in that moment, and so many others, uh, especially binationally for me here in in relationship with those seeking refuge, um, with neighbors who are, who are dreamers, DACA recipients who live here in the States but don't have citizenship, and they're, uh, they're isolated from flourishing because our systems are so broken. Mm. When we're sitting with Maria on the side of the road in Tijuana, it was completely insufficient for us to say, okay, we'll pray for you and then drive back home and 20 minutes later sit on our patio and reflect on her plight like that. Right. Yes. We're going to pray for her right? and we're going to fight like crazy personally, like bring, bring her family meals, take her kids to school, help them get passports. But we're going to, we're going to advocate with our votes to change the broken systems that are keeping her from being reunited with her husband and five kids. And and friends in Palestine who we've been with for now over a decade who live under the weight of deep occupation. Um, so, so anyway, the, the ways that we vote and engage systems impacts people that people like me often choose not to see because we don't have to Mm -hmm. see them because of our privilege. And so Mm -hmm. I want to start there. Like that personal orientation is what drives me to say, okay, I'll have that really uncomfortable conversation with a family member who thinks I'm crazy because I vote a certain way because Maria needs to get back to her kids and voting and engaging politics and system change yeah. is a kingdom invitation in that sense. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Did Maria ever get back to her, her children? Yeah. I mean, long story short, uh, well, my wife saw her this morning at, at drop off for the kids. Oh my um, God. She's home with her kids. The journey there was, was long and hard and complex, um, but she is home. She's in our neighborhood, and we see her every day. Uh, thanks be to God. Oh but gosh. her 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 future is still uncertain, and the PTSD yeah. her kids continue to acquire from the uncertainty of their future uh, is very real. And so, anyway, that's, that's that that's a starting point. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's I thank you for sharing that because. Even you just saying that piece about the PTSD for her kids just made me think that like my daughter's, one of my daughter's friends when we lived in LA, um, told her that her dad told them that he might be deported. And my daughter was like, oh God, she was like nine or 11 at that point, maybe. And my, my daughter had secondhand, like she was so afraid for her friend. Like if the, if the mom, if the dad goes away, is she going to lose her friend? And so it's Mm. just like, you know, even, you know, we don't have to have best friends or we like, even just me watching my daughter be afraid for another kid, like even made me like want to be, pay more attention to immigration and like what, what, how am I voting and how am I using my vote for those who cannot vote? And yet the, the systems and the laws and the policies that get passed deeply affect them and yet they have no voice. That's right. You know? So, yeah. So thank you for sharing that. You bet. 
So, uh, so what, what is this framework? Wait, how are we talking about politics and what's a bit of a history? Here's, here's where we're at and feel free to jump in as, as I, I, I dive into this. But for me personally, and I think a lot of you listening in, probably you're more proximate to my seat of power and privilege uh, than someone like Maria. Um, and when we realize that and we think of our biblical story that we center so much of our lives around in our faith tradition, we realize I have more in common, honestly, with, with Pharaoh than with Moses, um, or with Pilate than with Jesus, that I have more in common with the antagonist in the biblical story than the protagonist. And so that has to be a starting point for me to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. When I start to write myself into the story as a protagonist, I'm just like placing my power and privilege onto a biblical story that's a story of the oppressed seeking liberation. Right. Uh, and so that has to be our, we have to reorient ourselves around that. And and that's why I said, you know, that our definition of of Privilege is the ability to walk away. And so when I have the ability to walk away, I can disconnect from broken systems or I can only vote based on my economic flourishing because I'm not really impacted by the social impacts of broken policies. Um, So a question we have to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, especially those of us with privilege and power, how do we hold this power without compromising our fidelity to the kingdom of God? Or as Padre Gautama, he uh, says power is neither positive or negative. The question is how we use it. So those of us Christians here in the U S especially us dominant culture folks, how are we using, how are we leveraging our power, our privilege for the sake of systems change that benefit those on the underside of those power, those, those broken systems. Um, and there's two paths I would argue that we have, we've taken oftentimes in, in Christian America or, uh, Christians in America and, and the first is what we call um, cross and country, a cross and country faith expression, which some people call Christian nationalism. And mm-hmm. it's this very close relationship between the way that we see God's work in the world and the way that we see the United States work in the world. And uh, it can get funky and ugly, and and it has a big history uh, all the way back from the beginning of the 19th century with the rise of fundamentalism when we're, we're starting to like decide who are our enemies and how we write them into the biblical story. At one point, our enemies is Russia, and that must be the source of the Antichrist, and then we move it to Iran, and then they, mm-hmm. like, we can begin to say things, like Billy Graham even, the, the, the holy Billy Graham in our Christian story, which there's plenty of great things he did, but he would even use rhetoric, especially into the 50s and 60s, about like, not only is God on our side, but the world will come back to salvation when we defeat communism. Yes. You know, he would he would place all this 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 language of what's called civil religion onto our faith. And then we don't know if we're Christian or if we're American or where one stops and one starts. And that led to the rise of the religious right in the late 70s and 80s that said, wait, we can really leverage this marriage of church and state to get across an agenda. And um it makes it really neuters not only neuters the the salt and light of our Christian faith, it compromises it, makes it idolatrous in many ways, right. and that's when we run into stuff like Christian nationalism, right? Um, which Christian Dumay, who wrote Jesus and John Wayne, maybe some of you have read that. She says that Christian nationalism is the belief that America is God's chosen nation and must be defended as such. So yeah, yeah, we, we get into some trouble. You know, we hear, we say things like "God will save the world through the United States of America," um, or you hear people and presidents, and this is Republicans and Democrats, say things like "America's last is the world's last best hope." Yes. 
So, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that stream resonates, Ashita, with some of your experience, but that's a, <laughs> that is one way that Christians have chosen to engage politics. It totally does, because I remember when, I remember 9-11. Yes. And I, I, I remember being, okay, so this is before iPhones, this was before, I mean, and I didn't listen to NPR on my drive-in to school. I was thinking it was listening to like Switchfoot or something on my drive-in to school that day. So I had no idea. And I walked into my campus and it was a frenzy. Like people were on mm. their phones and I was like, what is going on? And then I got to a class and saw the towers fall. And um, on my drive home, I remember being just so scared because I thought if this happens in America, yeah. like this isn't supposed to happen in America. If this is happening in America, the whole world is burning. Yep. Like that's how uh, America centric I was like yeah. I was such a nationalist like America is God's chosen country all these mm-hmm. things right um and then I was like I need to be with other Christians praying and I remember on the drive there I was listening to worship music that was like reminding me that God is present with us that God loves us it was I was going in in just this really like beautiful space of trusting that God sees all and is with us and loves mm. us and all that right and I got into the prayer meeting um, at this church that was, I never, I didn't attend, but a bunch of my friends in my young adult ministry were going there because our church wasn't doing something. And the rhetoric, and yeah. I, Brian Zahn has something similar in his story. So when I, re- when I read um, his account of how 9-11 landed for him, it was very similar to me, which is kind of eerie. But yeah. the rhetoric in the room about like God bringing um, death and destruction on the Muslims who did this and mm-hmm. Like all of just the language that was coming out and just how like we're going to overcome and like, and I just, it was a, it was a eye opening moment for me yeah. that I realized I cannot pray the same way these people are praying because deep down inside of me, and I mean, this is how I know like peacemaking is such an important ethic for me. Deep down inside of me, I knew there are mothers out there who were grieving their mm. their their sons mm-hmm. who got into those planes and drove them into the twin towers like i yes. knew that there were people who were like yes. even if they celebrated them because they were doing something out of their faith which i don't know that that's the case i think that's a lie we believe but i know yeah. that there are people who loved those yep. those people and um and so and and so that just changed the way that i mm. that i engage with christian nationalism and really just saw that there is a lack of care about the flourishing of all people. Yes. That is sort of a byproduct. You have to believe the worst about another country or another mm. people in order to believe and protect what you think is the best about yours. Yep, yep. That's <laughs> profound. And it, it is. It, Christian nationalism forces us to make enemies of people outside of our nation state or our boundaries and borders and as citizens of the kingdom. How in the world... like? So God, for God so loved the world, not the United right. States, and so we we get in trouble, and, and when we it, it allows us to dehumanize people for the sake of national gain, um, yeah, rather than to humanize people for the sake of their belovedness as God's children, you know, and yeah. that is is led to a, a big crisis, and we see it manifesting big time in our country right now. But it's not a new thing, so and I think it's yeah. important for us to understand that this yeah. is not a new thing. This is not a uniquely MAGA reality. Um, this is a an unhealthy orientation to power. Yeah. Um, the alternative well, is, and I'll, I'll hit on this briefly, is that we get apolitical. Like, okay, Christian nationalism's out. 
So I'm not going to engage politics at all. And we would call that an apolitical withdrawal. Or another way to put it is privileged apathy, honestly, Mm -hmm. that we can, in our privilege, because we're not impacted by the broken systems, we can step away. And and you see that manifest throughout history, everything from like, you know, the Essenes in the first century who withdrew withdrew and and prayed uh, for God's restoration rather than Mm -hmm. were active in societal's healing, to the desert fathers and mothers, to the radical reformers, the Anabaptists. And I know, Oshita, you come from this tradition. Like, uh, and I would say this is where I largely spent uh, most of my a couple, almost a couple decades in this space. Yeah. People like uh, Stanley Harawas and others who say like, well, we're, we're to be salt and light. We're a city on a hill. Let's create an alternative community, an alternative mm-hmm. economy, society that is a witness, a living witness to the broken world, which is so compelling in so many ways. It is. And I would argue it's very privileged. We have a privilege to just step out of the systems and say, oh, we'll, we'll, we'll hope things change by our prophetic alternative we've created over here. You also yeah. see this trend in the 80s and 90s in a different way with megachurches who are, who are saying, we don't actually talk about politics, we just talk about Jesus, which was really coded for saying, we don't talk about hard issues like racism or immigration or our orientation to whiteness because it might actually reduce our attendance, which reduces our uh, offering plates, which gets in the way of this big corporate system we've created. And so you can see apolitical withdrawal for different functional reasons, some theological with the Anabaptists, some ecclesiological with the megachurch movement. And I I think it's important to go to to Desmond Tutu, he says, it's uh, it's small comfort to a mouse if an elephant is standing on its tail to say, I'm impartial. In uh-huh. this instance, you are really supporting the elephant in its cruelty. So this is when, like as followers of Jesus, we can't be impartial. We can't be impassive, yeah. especially when we're seeing big time oppression and brokenness happen. So the apolitical thing has to go out of the door. And that's when we, we define politics in this podcast. And you and I go over and over and over into this to say it's the ordering of society. How yeah. are we engaging to order society in ways that lead to the flourishing of everyone? Especially for those of us as citizens of the kingdom of God, we have some clues as to what that could look like. Right. Well, I mean, yeah. So I, I did I did find, a, and I do still find a lot of theological home and resonance, probably more resonance is, is a better way of putting it, with Anabaptism or Neo-Anabaptism. Yeah. Um, I have a Jesus-centered reading of the Bible. I read the Bible as a story pointing to Jesus, pointing back to Jesus. Um, I am nonviolent. We stopped spanking our children when our oldest was six. Mm-hmm. My oldest now is 20. So that was a big shift for me. Coming up as a Black child in the South, like, go get your switch was just part yeah. of our family liturgy, you know? Yeah. So uh, I, I gave up a lot of... Uh, I gave up a lot of kind of the violence and thought word and deed because of my, in, because I embrace Anabaptist thought. Mm. Um, but like I said in the beginning, the thing that always that I struggled with was this idea that Jesus says the kingdom of God has come near. And yet Jesus was constantly flipping over tables of oppression yeah. and holding arbiters of broken systems accountable. And Jesus died a political death. So right. I would I would look and see okay I would look at language of the kingdom of God, and if Jesus was the one who in, initiated that language, inaugurated that language, and says so the kingdom of God has come near, and then we see Jesus doing all this political stuff. Yeah, 
then does that mean that as an Anabaptist or a Neo-Anabaptist, uh, like, does that mean that I am somehow rejecting Jesus's discipleship by not being willing to embrace politics? Because mm. somehow Jesus managed to bring, to hold empire accountable by talking about the kingdom, but not in the way that says, we're kingdom people, so we don't engage with the world. Yeah. We're saying, because we're kingdom people, we're going to engage with the world in these really threatening ways, and we're that's willing right. to die for it. Yep. And yep. that, I didn't hear a whole, whole lot. I think that's one of the reasons, too, as a Black woman who was really formed and loved in Anabaptist spaces, I never fully felt comfortable talking about the things that really mattered to me in my spiritual formation like coming, being comfortable in my skin as a black woman, I couldn't say that that's part of where what God is doing in my, you know, with me and my spiritual director and then me and my prayer time, because then that would mean I'd have to talk about race, which meant yeah. I would then have to talk about systemic oppression, which then would make really everyone uncomfortable in the room because there's no Jew or Gentile or no, you know, we're all made in God's image, no male, no female. Like we're, you know, always kind of equalizing um, things that we're told, these yep. pithy little phrases that shut down a conversation about my lived experience. And so I had to figure out a way to hold my peacemaking, love-centered ethic while engaging in these conversations about race. Because yeah. again, like I said, I live a racialized experience. And that's kind of where like people like Drew Hart, who wrote, who's, talks about Anablacktivism, mm. where he holds an Anabaptist perspective, but he's a Black man and he's also engaging yes. in politics. Um, I think that's a beautiful way of just of growing and uh, of that evolving. And I, and I uh, ascribe to that in a lot of mm. ways. But I think that that's an important thing. It's important for me sitting across from you, John, to hear you say that some of the ways that Anabaptist thought has been rooted in white privilege. Mm -hmm. It's important for me to hear you say that because that's always how I felt, but I didn't want to say that because I don't want to, I want to celebrate the nonviolent, beautiful ethic you that bet. I see in my white siblings, but also yeah. we need to have a conversation about this thing. Over totally. Here, you know, yeah. and, and it's, we can't, I don't want to overly dismiss it because their history, I mean, the Anabaptists, <gasps> they were persecuted. They were killed. They were killed <laughs> by the Protestants and the Catholics. I mean, right. they were on the underside of power. But I want, I wonder if the way it's evolved in the way we've created these kind of theological bubbles and it has largely been constructed around whiteness has compromised its legitimacy in today's society, especially for someone like you who's waking us up to like, we can't hold a theology that doesn't impact the way my body is impacted in society. Right. Um, there's that disconnect. And, and so let me bring up the last point, and I appreciate you bringing up your experience within this, because it gives it the the kind of texture we need to be thinking yeah. about this practically um, in embodied ways. But how we're we're going to be pointing to people again, because we're going to have a bunch of conversations with folks all over the place, politically and theologically. But what we want to invite you to consider is beyond apolitical withdrawal or beyond Christian nationalism or crossing country faith, what would it look like for us to hold a conflicted allegiance mm -hmm. um, where we hold intention this responsibility to leverage our U.S. citizenship, which we have, if you have a blue passport, and our citizenship to the kingdom of God. And they're, they're not equal. The kingdom of God citizenship has to be on top of that. But we also can't discard our our relationship to politics, especially when we live in a democracy. 
uh, like the United States. I mean, yes, the U.S. is a modern-day empire in many ways, but it's also a democracy, which at Mm -hmm. its best is giving us the opportunity to engage it with our votes, and that's not something Mm -hmm. we should take for granted. And we're Mm going to talk about that this season, about why democracy is something we should be grateful for, or at least understand how to leverage for the benefit of those in the margins. And so, you know, you have all sorts of people that have lived this out, uh, the MLK examples, the in Latin America, people like Samuel Escobar and Rene Padilla, who talked about a holistic gospel that transforms society and souls. Um, people like Ron Sider and and, Bar- and uh, Tony Campolo in the state started to talk about it this way in the 70s and 80s. Today, you have people like Bernice King Jr., MLK's daughter, and Lisa Sharon Harper and Shane Claiborne, who talk about it in really helpful ways. Mm-hmm. But we, while while democracy is not our hope, it can be a vehicle for change. And I would argue, and I think we would argue collectively, we have to think about how we leverage that well. And when when someone like Noemi, who's a, a dear friend and a DACA recipient or a dreamer who was brought across the border at a very young age by her parents from Mexico, um, when she sits with, and, uh, sits with us and says, I can't vote, so I need you to. My life depends on it. Mm-hmm. To me, that's, mm-hmm. a, that, that's a very clear mandate. My, my kingdom mandate is to engage well. Um, and at the same time, as, as we listen in, a conflicted allegiance means we're holding these convictions and we're still engaged with our, our family members. And a lot of us have family members from a, a different generation who see the states in a very different way. And yeah. I know you and I both, Oshita, have, have dads who were in the military, and that's, yeah. that's informed how they engage. And so um, I'll, I'll end with this quote, and then I want to just launch into your story and how it intersects with this more intimately. Okay. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in relation to, to democracy and laws, it, it may be true that the law cannot make a man love me, but it can stop him from lynching me. And I think that's pretty important. And so MLK is reminding us, we don't place all our hope in the laws, but we can change them in such a way that impacts the daily reality of those on the underside of those systems. And yeah. that's where we want to be pointing towards in this season. Yeah. So, all right. Now, I asked at the beginning of this, when, when you and I first had a call about this, like, okay, okay Oshita, on a relational level, what, what would it look like for you and I to model a hard conversation with someone that we love that thinks differently? Um, mm-hmm. And I said, is there someone in your life that you'd be willing to do that with? And uh, you really woke me up to some of my own blind spots. And like, hey, John, whoa, like, it's a lot, it costs a lot more for me to, to have that conversation than it does for someone like you you have more to lose in that conversation. You have more past trauma and, and triggers related to that. Um, so what if I just talk about my experience as as a black woman and going into these political seasons and how that looks and feels and thinks and how that impacts my social reality? So I'm wondering if you could just invite us into how you and your social location are engaging this, not only on a systemic level, but on a relational level and how you stay grounded in the midst of it all. Yeah. So just to give a little bit more context to that part of our phone conversation. Yeah. Because I am, so we were, we were, you and I are both talking about maybe doing individual episodes where we talk to somebody who we hold different political ideas from or that maybe we have a history with. Like, you know, the episode that our listeners are going to get to hear with you and your dad. Yeah. Um, and I, felt like it was important for me to invite you in on something that I have noticed is uh, the impulse with mostly white peacemakers Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to 
political conversations and the impulses and I'm, I'm thinking specifically of white leaders too, mostly. Yep. Um, the impulse is we have a disagreement. We have red and blue people mm. uh, in our congregation or we have people, Black Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, whatever. And what we're going to do is we are going to have a dialogue, maybe a panel night where we get different ideas up on the stage. And then we're going to just let people talk it, talk it over, you know. So we could just get everybody in the room and get some information out in front of them. Everybody sees both sides. Everybody will leave. Yeah. Kumbaya. And that has, I've, I have not seen that work without a whole lot of additional care, um, context and prayer and patience. Mm. And, and so I wanted to kind of start or invite our listeners into the reality that when you ask a person, um, as Howard Thurman would say, like a, a, per, a disinherited person, a person whose back is against the wall, yeah. you back them into a room and then you ask them to stand with their back against the wall. That is not a posture of flourishing or comfort mm. or connection. Um, and it doesn't matter if um, we start the time acknowledging that we're all loved and that we're all made in God's image and all of that. The things that will come up in that conversation will again be a fun thought experiment or maybe even a, a, a interesting or intriguing or challenging thought experiment for the white person for whom they'll have this conversation, they'll leave the room and nothing probably yeah. will change. Yeah. But for the person of color, what will happen or the marginalized person is that they will be triggered on a whole, a whole host of different places and angles. They may now look at you and say, you're not a safe person to talk to when my, when my kid is afraid to get a driver's license because he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want to be pulled over by a police officer. Now I can't talk to you, my brother or sister in Christ about that or ask for prayer mm. because you hold this view, all lives matter or whatever. Um, that you might trigger their own past experience with a person, a white person who has shut them down with some sort of neutralizing pithy statement. Mm. Um, you might shut them down and, the, uh, and shut down their lived experience as they're telling you, well, actually, no, I watched this. I experienced this. And then you shut it down by saying, well, maybe that's just their store policy that they follow everyone who's using a WIC voucher to get formula yeah. for their kids. Um, and so without a whole lot of care for both, where you sit with white peacemakers and you kind of talk about all the different ways that, that this conversation could harm a, a person of color. And you sit with your marginalized community members and you say, what do you need to be able to enter into this conversation? Um, and, or do you even want to be in this conversation? Because like for me, I wrote a book called Dear White Peacemakers. Mm -hmm. I want to be in these conversations. I particularly feel called and invited to be in these conversations. It's important for me, but not every person of color has that and 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 so making having a conversation the the end goal of how we deal with our division is not always helpful for a person of color and so yeah. what i wanted us to to be open to in this conversation is yes always coming back to how do we come to the table and how we have conversations but also for the marginalized person sitting in god's presence and saying is am i supposed to sit at the table or am i supposed to be prayer walking around the building yeah. Or am I supposed to be protesting? Like, is, is the table the place where it happens? And I, I really love Razma Medikim's work. He's a somatic abolitionist. And he holds mm -hmm. that, you know, white people, I call white peacemakers, really need to start spending more time with each other, dissecting and understanding how these conversations affect even them. So yeah. they can enter into these spaces with a, 
a level of compassion. And it makes me think of something that like Nowlin says, he says, action with and for those who suffer is the concrete expression of a compassionate life and the final criterion of being a Christian. And so Mm. asking a person of color, a marginalized person or a person on the other side of a system to jump into a conversation is not always the most compassionate thing that we can do. But that doesn't mean that we people like people on the margins don't have a responsibility to our spiritual formation and may and and to be peacemakers with this it may just look different than a conversation so that's what i you know wanted to bring (laughs) as we're processing this you bet and i think that's it was so important for me to hear and be reminded of and, and hopefully for those of you listening in that you know peacemaking looks it's not it's not uniform <laughs> the practices of it have to take into consideration all sorts of factors like social location and theological background and race and and we have to create space for trusting relationships that help us discern how and what and when the peacemaking practice is lived into would you say i mean and 100% and i would even say like john I would trust you to enter into a room for a dialogue around anti-racism or like mm-hmm. why black lives matter. <laughs> like is, is an okay phrase or like, I would yeah. trust you because you're a white person who has done the work and you can enter in that and you will advocate, but, and, and, but your, your lived experience isn't at stake. And so yep. you will fight in such a way that uh, will be sustainable. And, and I hope, you know, safe for you, safer for me, but also you have a cachet. You have a you have a shared experience with the other people in the room. And so like I I wanted to add some nuance. Like for those yeah. of us who feel comfortable entering into these conversations, like we'll talk a little bit more about this, but I have to do a whole lot of contemplative work and yeah. self-care yeah. to be able to be in these spaces. But some of us don't want to do that work or can't yeah. do that work or yeah. are not called to do that work. And for them, we need to bless them to continue being mindful of their peacemaking. Um, yeah, in a way, because the end goal is flourishing, right? Human right. flourishing across the board. That's yeah. right. And I think, so then as we talk about peacemaking here, you know, we're talking about peacemaking as a proactive movement toward conflict to heal and to transform. But what right. that proactive movement toward conflict looks like for each of us might be differently. And so I, th- I think it might be different. So I'd love to hear you talk about how... And, you know, I think of John Paul Lederach, who developed this conflict transformation theory. And he, and he says there's times to move towards conflict. And there's actually times to necessarily pull back and create mm. space for grounding and reflection before mm-hmm. you move back into it. And I think people like myself, who honestly have less to lose on a lot of these issues because it doesn't mm-hmm. impact me as tangibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're gonna this season. We're gonna talk about what it means for us to leverage our influence and get after right. it, both on a systemic level and on a relational level. And it's not right. that hard conversations with family aren't traumatic, and they, and we want to honor that because I know they have been for me at, at times too. But it's different than Oshida for you, who could go into a situation where it impacts the tomorrow for your kids. Um, so how how do you stay grounded? And you talk about contemplative activism in some really helpful yeah. ways that kind of help us move beyond the nationalism and the apolitical. Yeah. Well, first, I want to give just a good definition from um, Drew Jackson. Um, he's president of PAX, which is an organ- a peacemaking organization, too. Um, but he has this definition um, 
of contemplative activism that I think is really helpful. Mm. Um, so contemplative activism is about having a non-reactive, non-anxious presence in the world. And so for the contemplative activists, they view things not just through an either or binary, but through a both and. Mm. So able to hold uh, together opposites and the tension of things without the need to always have a resolution. So it's almost like in line of that conflicted allegiance piece. Yeah. Right? Um, it's about understanding that we're not separate from each other, but we're connected as a whole um, to God, to one another, the land, and the whole cosmos. It's that interdependent, interdependent, you know, we're bound together in an yes. inescapable network of neutrality, um, a single garment of destiny, as Dr. King says. Mm. Um, and then it's also deeply rooted in God and being present to God and being present to how God is engaging in the world. Um, especially when there's pain, suffering, and injustice or broken relationships. So it's this way. Um, I, I heard um, I heard someone describe it as this way of being um, aware of of God's love, grounding and holding you, um, and God's love extending from you to others. Mm-hmm. And from that, and from that wellspring, like from that space of of belovedness. You want to create, you want to proclaim belovedness. I, I say proclaim belovedness, but you want to see others own their belovedness. And then you want the world to have this sense of belovedness. So yeah. um, in my book, I talk about my work as an anti-racist peacemaker, as somebody that owns my belovedness. I proclaim the belovedness of others. And then we become, as Dr. King describes, a beloved community. And, and, and being beloved community means we work and we fight and we hold systems, we hold systems accountable that prevent people from experiencing their life as a beloved. Mm-hmm. So if if Maria cannot be with her children, she necessarily is not feeling able to access her belovedness. She's not right. feeling beloved by God because of a system. So what we do is we say that system is wrong because it prevents a human being who is beloved from experiencing belovedness. And yeah. so it's from that like deeply, like super grounded in love space that I do activism work, not because I necessarily want to see a certain, you know, a certain candidate get elected or, you know, uh, or a certain number of people at a pro- Like I don't look at those things. And I, I used to do a lot of activism and a lot of justice work and would pay attention to all of those kind of metrics and, and things like that. But I don't pay attention to those things anymore. Mm. I'm really asking myself, what is the most loving response I can bring to um, a situation? How can I be a presence for love um, when I am, you know, participating in activism? And next, for me as a woman of color, sometimes I have found that the most loving thing I can do is just go and be a presence of peace or go mm. and just hand out water bottles. Maybe it's not helpful for me to hold up a sign because maybe just the act of holding up that sign taps into some like aggression or like sense of division mm. because of the words that are on those signs. Maybe just being there and lovingly care for the people at mm. that protest is the most um, Christ-like thing I can do. And so for me, contemplative activism is this work of sitting in God's love, allowing that to hold me, and then asking the spirit, what does it look like for me to take that love into the streets? Because yeah. like Cornel West says, never forget, justice is what love, is what love looks like in public, right? Yeah. Yeah. So we want a just world, so how do I put love on display? And sometimes that looks like using our vote. That's good. Yeah. How would you say to contemplative activism... Um, I think especially in the political sphere and we have a whole generation of 
activists, which I think is really important. I also think <laughs> we can think we're activists because we like mic drop ourselves way through social media as if that's changing the world or we become yeah. really pious uh, in our thinking, but it's not really informing our everyday life or or we give so much that we just get burned out and we're out like we're on the sidelines. Yeah. And, and if there's yeah. anything we know about people on the underside of systems, we, we got to be in this thing for long haul. We can't just be loud for right. six months and then be done. So how does contemplative act is, activism help us stay in the game and also be healthy and maintain uh, like our ego, all that kind of stuff? So the biggest thing that has helped me as, as I've embraced contemplative activism is that interconnectedness piece, that focus on the communal, mm. that resistance of our American dream or westernized individualism and that embracing of a community and collective identity. Yeah. Um, because here's what here's what it, where it's helped me. I know that if I'm resting, and for me as a person, a person of color, a black woman who I know that my ancestors never got to rest. Yeah. And so the fact that I can rest now is a massive act of resistance Oof. against oppression. I know that I can rest if I am having a collective I, a collective view or a collective posture because I know you and Jer and other people connected to global immersion are out there doing the work. Mm -hmm. um, and then I know that when I'm doing the work, I am one of many who's doing the work. So I don't, I'm not too hard on myself. I yeah. show up with what I have to offer. I offer what I have. I bless it and consecrate it to God. And then I go away because my belovedness is not rooted in my activism. My belovedness yeah. is, is, is there. It's non-negotiable. It will never go away. I will always be beloved by God. Um, it also helps me see the humanity in people and it helps me have more hopeful conversations mm. because I always say that when I, when I am called to be in a, I, I do a lot of one-on-one -on -one conversations. I don't do a ton in big groups or big rooms because of the reason I explained before. But when I do do a one-on-one -on -one conversation, when I have grounded myself in belovedness and I enter into that conversation, wanting to proclaim that person's belovedness, um, even if we don't agree, I know that they, um, they're willing to have another conversation with me because they felt loved and respected and honored mm -hmm. in that conversation. And so contemplative activism helps me move the end goal from a policy, a protest, an act of a specific act of resistance to um, an ongoing open door and open possibilities where I can proclaim belovedness to someone in a conversation, even if we disagree with one another. Yeah. Wow. Imagine that. Imagine being able to disagree with one another and still see each other's humanity and dignity and image of God. Um, yeah. That yeah. sounds like a, a, another another world, in, as many say, another world might be possible, even in midterm season. <laughs> and so yes. we need this desperately. <laughs> and to that point, Oshita, what, like, as you think about the season that's coming up here, we're going to have an amazing group of guests, practitioners, academics, activists. What gets you excited about it? Um, we, there is a phrase that our listeners will hear that I have been noodling on for a while and that, um, to use our vote as a prayer. Mm. Um, so going back to that contemplative activism thing, I just loved to, um, taking sort of the steam out of it of, I'm using my vote to, as a weapon, but as a prayer yeah. for the kind of world that I want to live into. Um, and then the other thing that I will say that I hope that they get or that our listeners feel blessed by is that 
you and I try to end our episodes with a contemplative practice yep. um, that, you know, is inspired by the conversation we had with our guest. So I, I hope that, you know, as, I, as I've explained contemplative, contemplative activism, and it may have seemed a little like woo-woo or out of touch for you, that maybe the practices in the upcoming season will help you connect um, connect to God and connect to God's love as you think about being a peacemaker at the polls this yeah. election season. What are you excited about? Um, I think similarly that this is uh, this isn't a call just for more ideas or um, more bullet points, but really a, a, some thoughtful theology and thinking that frames how we live. And yeah. uh, for those of us listening into this season, we're not going to be able to walk away unchanged if we're really listening uh, in regards to how it transforms the way we interact um, with our votes and in our relationships, especially yeah. with those who think differently than us. And yes. I think right now in today's culture and society and as followers of Jesus, that it feels it feels very salty and very lighty. If we're salt and light in the world, I think this season is going to give us some tools that move us there. And that yes. feels desperately necessary and hopeful, uh, despite yes. the fact that these are some hard conversations too. But that's the, the, the oftentimes the path towards healing requires we go through the pain. Yes. Um, and we get to do that together. So that's fun. I love it. And I'm just glad that I, I mean, I, I'm glad that I get to spend the next few weeks with you chatting. I'm glad that we have so this time together. So. Totally. So fun. And there's so much ahead of us. And so, um, as we, you know, she, I wonder if we close, I'll, I'll say a couple things we can do for next step, but even if yeah. you want to seat us with a contemplative practice by the end of this, episode that sends us in if there's something that you want to point us towards. But um, to get going, three things. One, uh, at the end of every episode, we'll mention this, but there's a PDF practice guide that gives some tools, some definition of terms, some reflective questions, and then practices related to our peacemaking on a personal level and interpersonal level with those around us and also on a systemic level this election season. So go to the show notes and grab that uh, PDF as a guide. The second is global immersion, because we believe so much in this model of contemplative activism that Oshita has been outlining for us, uh, three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday morning, we have a team of spiritual directors that guides us in contemplative prayer at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time every day, every, every week, all year long. Uh, so jump into that, and we'll have a link in the show notes to, to jump in that Zoom time as well. The last thing is... A couple of years ago, we put together a bunch of resources around what it looks like to embrace a conflicted allegiance. And we have a video and some webinars that are awesome and some uh, practice guides for your community. So the show, in the show notes, you'll also see a link um, to more resources around conflicted allegiance. Yeah. So I guess the only practice I am going to invite those the listeners to do is to go ahead and mark their calendars like, for those contemplative prayer times. Mm. I am going to make a commitment to show beliefs twice mm. a week for the next uh until the election in mm. those spaces so i might see you there sweet um but yeah make make that a make that a rhythm at least while you're listening to this podcast series yeah. so i have to remember that's nine o'clock for me because i'm central yeah one. that's right but yeah <laughs> awesome thank you Sheena. all right my friend here we go 